0: and the pressures of closing, while also getting insights on how to best navigate the public markets. Welcome back to The Insider's Guide to Business. Today, we're speaking with Jacob Vanderslice, who's a partner and principal at Van West Partners. His focus is in on the world of self-storage facilities and opportunistic real estate acquisitions, which I think is gonna be an interesting conversation. Just the self-storage alone, I've always been interested in the industry, but there's a lot of nuance to it, I imagine. So here we are.
1: Without further ado, Jacob, welcome to the show. Corey, great to meet you, and thanks for having us on today. We appreciate it. Yeah,
0: let's get into it. I think the best place to start is with an introduction from yourself, and then we'll build from there. So I'll, I'll hand it over.
1: Well, as you said, my name's Jake Vanderslice. I'm a principal at Van West Partners. We're a private equity firm based out of Denver. We focus mainly on self-storage. I've been investing in real estate full-time since about 2006. Cover a lot of asset classes. We did a lot of single-family multifamily, retail, townhome development. We got into self-storage in about 2015. Just kind of kept going and mainly focused on self-storage since then. As of today, we've got about $235 million worth of self-storage facilities around the country. That's uh, 37 stores, just under 20,000 units. We're trying to buy more.
0: Yeah. A lot of questions come to mind when I start thinking about self-storage facilities, because in, in one way, it's just such a great business model. In fact, a mentor of mine for many years, he picked up a self-storage facility in in Vancouver, British Columbia, right downtown 30-some years ago. And I think it was measured in the value of low millions. All the way through, he had remarkable returns, and then he sells it to one of the biggest developers in the country for for millions and millions of dollars for the property. And so there's a, a really great business model there. But my question comes down to the economics of it all. And especially now, it seems like there's a lot more dollars chasing a lot fewer assets. So can you dive into what you look for and what these assets look like and what are the numbers you're after?
1: Economics and self-storage have been increasingly challenging on the acquisition side. It's great if you're an owner right now, but it's becoming really difficult to buy. There has been a flood of capital into the space, especially since the pandemic. It performed really well during the pandemic and even better after than it was before the pandemic. Mm. So, you've got these massive institutional investment companies that are entering the space that were not in the space before. Blackstone's in the business now. Bill Gates bought a big stake in another self storage company. There's been a lot of consolidation, portfolio consolidation, and some really premium numbers on some of the trades we've seen. So, we're doing a couple different things in storage. We have done, historically, we've done ground-up development. We've done repositions from a non-storage use into self-storage, like industrial into storage or retail into storage. And then we've bought deals that are existing Mm. storage where we add value to with operational efficiencies. So we're mainly focused now on deals in a variety of target markets that have good supply and demand fundamentals, good population growth. And we'll buy really four different deal types right now. One of the deal types we'll focus on is income. An income deal type is... Decent occupancy, but below market rents, above market expense loads. And we add value by growing the revenue streams, controlling the operating expenses. Second deal type we look for is a lease-up deal. Maybe a owner built a new facility. They started leasing it up for whatever reason they want to sell it. So we'll buy it. We'll step in. We'll continue the leasing effort, get it towards stabilization. Uh, Third deal type we're targeting are certificate of occupancy acquisitions, which is where you buy something new, but it's empty. So you take the risk of the lease up, but you get a more of a discounted price on it because there's no income in place. And another deal Mm -hmm. type we're looking at are expansions, which is where you buy an existing facility and you build more net rentable square feet next to it. So you might buy a 50,000 foot location, build 30,000 feet next door because there's a lot of demand. And then finally, we've got a number of ground up development projects in our pipeline here on the Colorado Front Range. They'll start closing kind of later Q3 into Q1. So... All storage, of course, but a variety of different storage strategies.
0: I never thought about the acquiring potentially, you know, the ability to acquire a piece of industrial space that just has been completely undervalued. Come in there and put in some walls and some security systems and and you've got your converted asset there.
1: The conversion strategy is attractive because your time to revenue is so much shorter than ground-up development. You're buying an existing building and you're retrofitting it versus going through the entire entitlement process building from the ground up, doing sales reports and all the stuff that comes along with development. You're not typically doing as much of that in a conversion. Yeah. Yeah.
0: How did you get into this space? I mean, real estate investing, what's your background and yeah. How did you
1: get into this? I've learned by failing, which is a really that good way. way to learn. <laughs> yeah. I started investing in real estate when I was a career firefighter many years ago, and you only work 10 days a month. So you have a lot of time on your hands. I wasn't married, no kids, no responsibilities. So I started doing rentals and fixing flips on the side. I got busy doing those and quit my full-time job, and I've been somewhat unemployed ever since then. did a lot of single-family residential over the years. We did over 1,200 single-family homes all around the country, mainly in Denver, but Arizona, Central Valley of California, some deals in the Southeast, Kansas City. I think real estate investing, regardless of the deal type that you're buying, it's it's fundamentally similar. I mean, you just have to figure out, what's it worth when I make it better? What does it cost to make it better? And then you back into what you can pay for it. And you can apply that to mm-hmm. a $100,000 single-family fix and flip or a $25 million self-storage Do those still for. exist? Well, we uh, we stopped looking for them a couple of years ago because yeah, we just couldn't find anything that made sense. And it was a business we were doing in tandem with self-storage, but the deal flow really started drying up. We used to buy almost all of our deals at the trustee sales in our single-family days. And that was great because mm-hmm. you show up in your shorts and flip-flops with a stack of cashier's checks. You buy 3 or 4 deals a week. You rehab them. You sell them. You do it over and over again. And that dried up. So we pivoted to direct-to-seller marketing. And our marketing overhead and our payroll overhead against our revenue was just becoming less and less efficient as the months went by. So my partners like to say that we we shut it down. I like to say that we paused it because it'd be fun to get back in that business someday. Our main focus and the main enterprise value we've created has been in the self-storage space. We had looked at it for a while, and we liked the historic recession-resistant aspect of the asset class. It had a really low loan default rate back in the financial crisis. And one of my partners actually built a storage facility with his parents in California in high school. So that was our self-storage experience, right? A guy in high school that Mm. was a partner did a deal. So he liked the asset class a lot. We partnered up with some high net worth folks here in Denver, and we started off with a couple development projects that we're actually selling next month. We started on those in about 2015. And uh, we just kind of kept going. Went into the Midwest in about 2016, specifically Milwaukee, and then expanded into more Midwest markets, the Southeast. So right now we've got deals kind of all over the place, Mountain West, Midwest, Southeast.
0: Interesting. When it comes to doing these acquisitions in the self-storage space, I'm curious, especially with the amount of competition that's out there. Like you say, like for example, BlackRock's coming in and, and the cost of capital for BlackRock is non-existent comparative to I would imagine somebody like yourself. Yep. Yeah. And so how do you compete
1: there? The answer really is we we generally can't compete. If it's a widely marketed deal that's institutional quality and it's marketed by a national brokerage firm, We are we are still going to chop it up and put our hat in the ring we're probably Mm. gonna miss it by millions of dollars. We had a Mm. portfolio acquisition we looked at. We got aggressive, but still responsible on our offer price. I think we were at $24 million and it traded for 33. That's a massive Delta. And the underwriting assumptions I think that you would have to put into your model to be able to pay that price are arguably untenable. I mean, if you have a 1% cost of capital, maybe you don't care. Maybe you just want a hard asset that produces some cash flow. You're not going to put debt on it. But if it's a widely marketed deal, we can't really compete with those guys. So most of our deal flow is either inefficiently marketed properties or off market properties. So we do a fair amount of direct to seller marketing, which we kind of learned from our single family days. We're just marketing to self storage owners instead of homeowners. We also have a lot of broker relationships. I hate the term off-market because sometimes that connotes a bad deal, right? It's not really off-market. Everybody's seen it. Just because you haven't seen it listed doesn't mean it's off-market. But the deals we've gotten are truly off-market. Just developing good relationships. Hey, guys, this portfolio is coming up. My seller will take $15 Will that work for you? If it does, I'll sign you up. And we typically close easily and close quickly. So that's been most of our inventory that we've sourced. I want to come back to
0: that. Close easily, close quickly. But I also want to understand to the extent that you're willing to disclose them is is the economics that you put on your deals. So when you look at, let's keep it easy, a $10 million facility as a purchase price, what is that cost of capital? What are the kind of margins you're after? What are the pre-deal expenses that you would have going into this? For example, I would imagine that you would, before putting any capital in, have to do environmental examinations or environmental reports on the property and make sure that there isn't contamination, different things like this. All
1: of our third-party reports that we bring to bear are capitalized in the total deal costs. We have lender legal, we have buyer legal, we have phase one, phase two, property condition reports, surveys, all that stuff.
0: Oh, and so you just capitalize that all into... That capital gets capitalized the into the deal. deal. So-
1: it's baked into our pro forma. Yeah. The return profile, runner writing too, there's a couple different metrics that we look at. And as you talk about returns in real estate investing... It's not smart to look at any one of these metrics and make your decision on a deal based off that one metric. You have to look at the metrics as a whole together and kind of interpolate uh, what all these mean together. So one of the metrics we look at, which is very common, is yield on cost or the cap rate that we're buying it at. So our general goal is to we don't worry too much about the going in cap rate. If it's a really inefficiently managed facility, they've got low occupancy. We might buy it at a three cap and you might think to yourself, well, a three cap is really low. And yeah, it is. Um, But there's a lot of runway to grow that yield on cost. So we'll generally target stabilizing these to about an 8% yield on cost. That's one metric that we track pretty heavily.
0: And effectively, your cap rate, that's your yield on cost. Cap rate, yield on cost, kind of terms that are
1: used interchangeably. But a cap rate can also infer your exit cap rate. Right. And that's not a yield on cost. So we'd like to use the term yield on cost because it's exactly what it is. What's your unlevered cash on cash mm. return on your cost basis? So it's one thing we track. Another metric we look at very carefully is IRR, which I'm sure you're familiar with. I'm going to briefly yeah. jump on my IRR soapbox for just a moment.
0: Yeah, do it. Because I heard somebody I interviewed, young guy who just said it's an absolute waste of time. So please
1: <laughs> carry on. IRR is, to put it kindly, is an elusive metric that can yeah. unfortunately it's a universal metric that expresses the return profile of an investment and IRR stands for internal rate of return and that calculation is based on a time weighted series of cash flows so if you give me money today and in a week i give you your money back plus a little bit of profit your time weighted return your put it otherwise your annualized return is going to be through the roof but you're probably not excited because you got your money back and you made whatever, $1,000. So IRR can go very high if a sponsor is buying a deal, adding a little bit of value to it, and then selling it very quickly. So IRR hmm. is something we consider, and we're generally targeting, depending on the deal type, between 14 to 20% from an IRR perspective. But what I think is more important than IRR is the total multiple on the invested capital that we put into these deals and by multiple i mean how much profit can you expect to realize on the investment over the life of the vehicle as a percentage of your original investment so if you put 100 grand into a deal you get $200,000 back some years later that's a 2x right put 200 put 100 and get 250 back that's a 1.5 uh, that's a, a 2.5x so we try to blend a healthy irr with a healthy multiple and we make our investment decisions one more to put a little bow on irr you might get a 50% irr but if you sell it quickly and you make a little bit of profit, your multiple might be 1.1 or 1.2. And that's pretty low, mm. right? So we yeah, try to kind of blend those two together.
0: That brings me back to the point that was made when I interviewed this gentleman. and his, his point was to fund managers that you don't buy your private jets with IRR. You need that actual cash on cash return kind of thing,
1: right? Yeah. I had an old rich guy once asked me, do you want to put IRR in your pocket or do you want to put cash flow and multiple in your pocket? Yeah. One more brief example here. Let's say an investor gets a 2x over five years. That's a good return over a rational amount of time, right? Let's say that same investor gets a 2x over six years. That's still a good return over a rational amount of time, but the IRR is going to be materially different because of that additional time that elapsed between year five and year six. So, as people are out there evaluating investment opportunities, don't go look at three different funds or syndications and say, this one's a 12, this one's a 15, this one's a 20. I'm going to invest in the 20 well, what's driving that 20? What are their mm. assumptions that go into that 20? What's the multiple on that 20? Just kind of things to be aware of.
0: I see you go after opportunistic real estate. And, and so by definition of that term in your for yourself and for your partners, what is that definition? and And what are some of the nuances you find in great opportunities?
1: Well, our storage funds only focus on storage, and they focus on opportunistic storage acquisitions. But we'll look at anything that we think is a good deal. Our fund may not buy it, but we'll we'll put together a syndication or some kind of sidecar that will buy it. We launched our most recent fund in January of 21, and we closed it out in Q1 of this year, 2022. And that was about 100 million dollars in total costs, roughly 38 in equity and 62 in bank debt. And it's a big portfolio and we have a lot lot of storage deals that we own that we bought prior to that portfolio. And my partners and I heard about an off-market deal in Denver that was kind of next to a retail project that we bought and we could pay a million two for it and maybe put a liquor store in. And we're like, well, I'm not sure if we should get in the liquor store business because we've got a big storage portfolio and the ROI and our time might be a little inefficient. So we bought the deal and said, let's figure this out. We got a liquor license in place and then we sold it a couple weeks ago for a big markup to a liquor store operator as is. So it's a tiny deal and it's not fitting inside of our storage thesis, but it's an example of deals that we uncover kind of on the side that we want to go out and execute on. We're definitely in the storage box and our funds focus on storage. But if we see opportunity somewhere, we're going to look at it and probably take a run at it.
0: Yeah, interesting. Okay, okay. As a former firefighter who seemed to have stumbled into real estate, you sure got the uh, fund manager lingo down.
1: <laughs> well, uh, I like to say I get less stupid every year. I don't. I don't get smarter. Uh, boy, I just. Okay. I learn more of what not to do. And by default, you just pick up on all the terms as you underwrite your properties and you report to your investors. It's a fun business for sure.
0: Now your position is effectively a fund manager going after these real estate assets where we've seen you know, some really unprecedented economic times, the amount of cash that's out there, the amount of interest that's coming from you know, massive institutions who in some degrees don't even care about their cost of capital, I imagine. And I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but what are you seeing and how are you reacting to this and how are you preparing for what could come and what is that what could come?
1: I'm concerned about a few things in general and I went through the financial crisis I was investing in real estate I was in my 20s didn't know a whole lot but I'll never forget those days they were painful and it was it was sudden mm. it was fierce so we think about that every day
0: can you build on that what happened like what was the failure there
1: buying properties with high leverage having cash flow issues and then a decline in values if you if you max out like leverage can be a beautiful thing if it's used responsibly and a high levered deal that goes well, your return on your equity is going to be through the roof because most of your capital is debt stack is debt, not equity. But if you buy a deal with high leverage and the deal fails, there's no margin for error. If it goes down by 20% and you've got 90% debt on it and the debt market sees up and you can't refinance, you get a problem. Mm-hmm. So high leverage, lack of cash flow, you know we're thinking about that constantly. And what we're seeing out there today are a few things that are concerning. I think the market's a broad thing to say i think the real estate market in certain asset classes is becoming very irrational the fundamentals have kind of uncoupled so you know we can touch on single family for a moment because i think single family to a degree is a good barometer for a lot of different asset classes in the u.s home values have gone up 20 percent year over year as of the month of february in denver specifically which is where i live historically when i'm underwriting a single family deal back in our single family days I would look at market comps, I would look at price per square foot, I would look at average days on market, what's trading that's similar to this, and you would peg a value on your deal if you bought it fixed up. So you would assume, okay, there's 3 comps that are at 500 grand, those have new kitchens and bathrooms, I'm going to assume that if I can buy this at 350 and put 50 into it, I can sell it for 500. So that is not happening now. People are paying prices that the market's not supporting they're paying cash, mm. they're bidding properties up. We looked at a deal just for fun over the weekend. The list price was a price that I didn't think could really appraise very easily. It was already high, and that property's under contract for $700,000 over the list price. So there's just irrationality out there. There's I feel like there's a desperation to get your cash into hard assets. And to a degree, we're seeing the same thing, not as extreme, but the same thing in the self-storage space we're seeing portfolios that don't have a lot of additional value creation meat on the bone that are trading at a 3% cap rate. And that kind of segues into the rising rate environment. So we refinanced our fund one portfolio in January at a 10-year fixed rate of 4% interest only. So good cash flow, good rate. That same loan product today would be about 5.25%. So as rates continue going up, somehow we're still seeing cap rates decreasing. And at some point, that's going to break.
0: Yeah, I feel the same. I say this to some people that it feels like the physics of finance no longer apply in it. The fundamentals and the physics of finance, you cannot continue to see interest rates rising while cap rates are dropping and think that something's okay, right? Like There's a, a complete decoupling of the fundamentals that, to me, are going to break.
1: I could not agree more. The way to, to make a deal pencil is to lie to yourself, right? Lower, lower the exit <laughs> cap rate. Assume that your refinance in three years is going to be a lower rate than it would be today. Get aggressive on your revenue growth in the first two years. You do all those things, your model will tell you what you want it to. You just have to believe it. And we don't believe those things. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of the private equity that's on the street right now, especially shops that are newer in the space, are assuming record revenue growth in the first couple of years. They're assuming big refinance proceeds, You know, playing the IRR game by returning capital quickly before a sale. And I think they're also assuming what I believe is an untenably low exit cap rate. Cap rates are not going to be a four in three years if interest rates are at six and a half. Right. It's just not going to happen.
0: Yeah. How are you preparing for this? Or what's kind of the strategy? I mean, if you're to look out three to five years.
1: One of our main mistakes we've made in our real estate careers has been being overly transactional, which means we buy, make better, and sell too often and too quickly, like a fix and flip, for Mm -hmm. example. So we've shifted that that school of thought to being more long-term cash flow investors and i believe in uncertain times your mode of defense and your downside protection is cash flow and all sins in real estate are cured with time but the question is can you hang on long enough to get through the downturn and the way you hang on is cash flow do you have more than enough cash mm-hmm. flow to cover your debt your operating expenses we think self-storage is a great vehicle for cash flow some of the deals we're buying don't have cash flow on day one or even year one, but our end goal is still the same and that's always cash flow. Yeah.
0: I love that, man. That's a great quote. All, all sins are all mistakes are, are cured with time and real estate.
1: Yeah. just You just got to be able to hang on. If you hang on for 20 years, it's probably going to be worth a lot more than you paid for it, but could you get there? And to return yeah, to my example yeah, earlier, if you're 90% leveraged and your income goes down and values go down. You probably can't get there.
0: So take me back to those days. Let's do a little throwback, a little history, or a little kind of um, memory lane. Two thousand eight was a major time for a lot of people, and that financial crisis, and and yeah, I think much more so in the U.S. where they had you know your ninja loans, the no income, no job, no problem kind of thing, or accepted was the the A of that for mortgages. Like, there's got to be some memories, man, where you look back and just some serious pain points that you look and go, wow, that was a That
1: was an experience. I learned the deals that have failed. I remember the deals rather that have failed so much better than I remember all the home runs. Because the home runs, they're great. Sometimes you get lucky. Sometimes you time it right. But the failures, you just learn so much. And it was an interesting time because on the portfolio that me and some of my partners had bought prior to financial crisis, those deals are just sucking wind. So that's kind of on the left hand. And on the right hand, we're at the trustee sales cleaning it up. We're buying deals left and right, massive mm. discounts, foreclosures are way up. So thankfully the deals that were turning kind of fed a lot of the deals that were failing for a long time. But the big wake-ups were banks failing, loan servicers that had some of your debt go out of business. Like you literally call them and nobody answers anymore. Hmm. The debt markets completely dried up, people cannot refinance their houses. I remember watching the trustee sales just skyrocket. There were almost no foreclosures leading up to this. And then I think in 2008, one of our zip codes here in Denver was the highest per capita foreclosure rate in the country. And that was followed very shortly thereafter by Arizona and Las Vegas, of course. And they, they far eclipsed yeah. that. But it was a time of great opportunity and a great pain kind of uh, simultaneously. Obviously, if we could all see the future, you know, we'd, we'd be in a very different spot. But... Had we all known what the market would do in the following twelve years after those days, we wouldn't have traded out of everything. We would have figured out a way to hang on to it. We used to buy deals for sixty grand, put in forty and sell them for one fifty, fixed up. Those deals distressed today are trading for four fifty. Very, very different environment today than it was.
0: Do you have a feeling that the I'm not an economist. I'm not really well-versed in the world of of monetary theory and all this. But what I, at a glance, understood is this kind of new modern monetary theory where the central banks are going to step in and, and bail out anything and everything, it seems. If something goes sideways, there's just more money coming. And And do you think we're going to continue seeing that or will eventually that stop? It happened in 2008. I think it happened again with kind of more of a minor crisis in between. And then we have the the pandemic and Unbelievable amounts of money is thrown into the market. And hey, we're, we're all OK. Is that going to continue or will that eventually break?
1: Well, if you can print money, you never run out. But what's that going to do to the economy? What's, gonna, what's that going to do to inflation? I mean, the pandemic years, we had the most massive infusion of capital into our economy in, in history. There was so much money the government put in to prop everything up. I don't know what the monetary policy is going to be moving forward, but what I do think is going to happen, and this is not my economic intelligence, this is just reading and talking to people that are smarter than me, I think the U.S. government is going to bring on a recession on purpose. And I think that's their Mm -hmm. only option right now to temper inflation. I think they would much rather drive up unemployment and stamp down inflation than they would keep unemployment low and have inflation continue. I mean, it's a 40-year high right now. And arguably, maybe not even arguably, but real estate's a good place to be in an inflationary environment, but you gotta be careful what you wish for. In our portfolio, our rents have gone way up. Storage leases, as you probably know, are month to month, so we can push through rate increases as we get units full. But at the same time, our operating expenses are going up too. Our insurance premiums are increasing. We're having a hard time mm. finding enough employees to staff all our facilities. We're having to pay our employees a lot more than we were a couple of years ago, just to get them to show up to work. So you catch inflation on the revenue side, but you also catch it on the operating expense side. Yeah. the question is, which one's going to go up faster, your OPEX or your revenue? Time will Hmm. tell.
0: Interesting. I'm not taking any side of the aisle here, but is Biden going to become the next Carter? And are we going to see a Paul Volcker-style hardcore hit? I know that's a little bit of a throwback, but
1: that's how the U.S. crushed inflation back in the 70s. A lot of people are comparing these years to the Carter years, and I think that's a possibility. We'll, we'll see what the administration yeah. does, but the Fed's talking about instead of a 25 BIP increase next month, they're talking about 50 now. So I think they're prepared to get pretty aggressive. I think if there is a recession that comes, it's going to be to a degree, somewhat intentional. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's going to happen, right? I don't wish for a recession by any means, but we may need a cleanse to uh, calm this environment down a little bit. And that cleanse is going to come in yeah. the form of higher interest rates, higher cost of capital, and if those things continue to happen, investors and buyers may stop getting so aggressive.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Well, and that will open up a whole bunch of opportunity. And it sounds like you're much well or much better positioned than you were in 08 when you're first starting out. So any final thoughts for the audience here? You shed some really good light on the, the industry of self-storage, but any final thoughts for anybody who's looking at real estate or in business and just from the experience you've had?
1: If you're ever considering doing a real estate deal yourself. I think the answer is go out and do one and take the risk. I think the best way to learn is to go out and take a risk. If you lose a little bit of money on your first deal, let's say you want to do a fix and flip, for example. You can read all the books in the world. You can listen to podcasts, listen to webinars, whatever. But the best way to learn is to go out and do something and take risk. So if you've been considering it, there's no perfect deal.
0: Yeah. Man, I had no idea You know, from your early history as a firefighter into now running a fund. That's awesome. That's such an interesting career path. So good on you. Final question is where can people find your information?
1: If anyone wants to connect and talk about real estate or anything, they can hit me on our website at vanwestpartners.com. Email me jacob at vanwestpartners.com or hit me on LinkedIn as well, Jacob VanderSlice.
0: That's great.
1: Jacob, thanks for your time. Thanks for having us on today.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Insider's Guide to Finance. If you enjoyed what you heard, Please share this with your friends and colleagues so they can benefit as well. You can also subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Play Store. Your support there is really appreciated. For future episodes, if there's a question, topic, or specific person you'd like me to interview, feel free to reach out. You can connect with me on LinkedIn or through my website at creativereturn.ca.